lot of you. You know, uh, we're going to be driving at the end of this month up to Seattle, Lord willing. And, you know, it's a nice scenic uh, drive up Interstate 5 all the way. You know, and in, pre- in preparation for this trip, you know, I've made plans. I've looked at uh, sites to see along the way. I've contacted people that I'd like to see and we'd like to visit. You know, I've booked hotel rooms and I've even done some work to the car this week to make sure we get there and back again without being stranded. And there's this uh, ever-growing excitement within our house, you know, filled with anticipation for what we're going to learn and what we're going to see and what we're going to experience. And we're going to, we have plans to see good friends, and I have no doubt we'll make new friends while we're there. And I'm going to see some friends from school that I haven't seen in, in 14 years. And, uh, you know, we have a roadmap of where we're going to go and the goals that we'd like to accomplish for this trip. And, and we've prepared everything, and basically all we have left to do is pack the clothes. And, but there's one thing that when you're planning a road trip that doesn't get a much attention. It's that final leg of the trip. It's, it's that last 50 miles home, I'm right? The beginning of the trip is mapped out to the, to the minute. You know what time you're going to wake up. You know what time you're going to hit the road. You have planned when your first stop is going to be. But those last 50 miles on the way home, you do everything in your strength just to stay awake on the road and make it home. And if you have kids and you're just like throwing snacks in the back seat just to get you home, And similarly, when it comes to preaching through a New Testament epistle, you start the book strong, right? There's so much anticipation for what you're going to see, where you're going to go. And usually that introductory message sets the stage for everything that you're going to see in the book, like who wrote the book, who they wrote the book to, when did they write it, what's the theological, historical, uh, geographical, the theological theological context of the book and often the series starts right plunging deep into theology and then we move into more practical matters or the imperatives of the book and when you know as as you think about the ends of books when's the last time you heard a sermon on the benediction of a book you know as a preacher these types of passages and, and texts are a little bit intimidating as they challenge us to work through what the Lord has for us on these, uh, in the benediction. And it's not too often when you uh, are asked, you know, what would you like to preach that you go as a preacher to the end of a book? I mean, what do you do with our verse today, verse 13, that Mark sends his greetings? Well, with all of that being said, I, I, I hope, and it's, it's not an excuse for you to check out this morning because we're at that that tail end of this, uh, this book. But I'm sure and I'm confident that there's a mind full of treasure if we can just dig deep into the text this morning. And I hope to do just that as we expose the text. And, and, uh, and I hope it doesn't feel like the, the last 50 miles of the, of the road trip. But I pray that your excitement for First Peter would grow and that you would worship God for what he's done through Peter. Sound good? Okay, so let's read our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll start at verse 10 and we'll go to the end of the book. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10, this is the word of the Lord. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Verse 12, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. I'm always intrigued at how people will conclude their emails these days. You have the normal, you know, best regards or sincerely or blessings. Uh, I've even seen emails signed off with peace out or I'll see you later. Or maybe you've received one with an emoji with the, the sunglasses and a peace sign on your computer. But, you know, there's even a whole country who's made this sort of uh, exits special because of the blessings they give. You know, I'm sure you've heard some Irish blessings in your day. Right? May your blessings outnumber the shamrocks that grow and may trouble avoid you wherever you go. You know, one commentator says that we find our most sincere part of our personal relationships when we say our hellos and our goodbyes. And so start thinking about and bringing to mind what Peter has been writing about up until this point. And he's going to end his letter in verse 10 telling them that they are going to continue to suffer for a little while. You know, how is he going to be ending it after telling him that, that God will receive the glory and the circumstances in the end in verse 11? What's left to say after 34 commands in this book? Well, this morning, you'll see in your notes, we're going to see five people in Peter's conclusion that we can glean some beautiful lessons from. And notably, uh, at the center of his conclusion, Peter gives us his final command of the book. He says, stand firm. So let's look at these five people and the five lessons for the believer. Starting with the, the first one. Number one, Silvanus. And what are we going to learn from Silvanus? He's going to teach us that faithfulness generates a reputation. And we'll come back to verse 10 and 11 at the end. But look at verse 12. Look at it. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. Okay. First off, we have to figure out who is Silvanus. You know, some have asserted that Silvanus actually is the one who wrote this book. Like, much like a scribe would. And textual critics have looked at the complicated Greek of the whole book and said that there's, there's no way that a fisherman could have uh, written this by himself. But when you think about Peter, and you think about how he grew up and where he was located, and that he was a fisherman, he would have had every opportunity to be very educated. In Capernaum, he, he fished, and he would, he would have been on a trade route. Right? Interacting with different cultures and different languages, different classes, high and low, all types of different tra travelers. And he would have, um, again, interacted with all different types of people. And, you know, people might be hard on Peter because of the way that he made a living. But, you know, have you read any of his sermons in the book of Acts? Does he sound like a dumb fisherman? No, I would argue that Peter is far from dumb. You know, so it's best to understand that Silvanus was actually the one who was carrying, physically carrying the letter to the recipients. And so we see in, in the book of Acts, Silvanus is just another name for the gentleman named Silas, right? We meet him in the book of Acts, and he was a companion of Paul and often traveled with him. And when we first meet Silas, we see him in Acts chapter 15, verse 22 and 32, and he's a leader. He's a leader in the Jerusalem church, and later he was sent uh, on, his, on Paul's second missionary journey. And on that journey, he'd be, he would be arrested, he'd be imprisoned, he would be beaten. And all the while, he'd be an example to those who are around him. We see Paul 
along with Silas, while they were in jail, they were singing hymns. Right? They used their imprisonment for the, to, to proclaim the gospel, to further the gospel, and it ended up resulting in the Philippian jailer's conversion. And so it would be a little, little bit surprising to see Sylvanus with Peter now, but we see through the book of Acts that he became the delivery guy. Right? Sylvanus, he delivered letters for Paul, and now he's delivering letter for Peter. And so Put your, put your mind back into the first century and, and think of those who, who would take a letter across, uh, across borders in the first century. There were no emails. There was no FedEx or DHL. You know, treks of 20 miles, 50 miles, 100 miles or more. Just to, It was a normal part of a, the delivery of a, of a communication, even the small communication. So that leads us, that, that means that you have to be wise in who you send to send the letter with. Right? You'd need to choose wisely who to send that with. And they need to be trustworthy to take your letter and distribute it. All right? A courier, they would go town to town in the middle of the square. And whoever's mail was there, they'd call out their name. But if you were absent, right, maybe your buddy would pick it up for you. And uh, throughout the time, uh, letters were stolen. And so that's why they'd start sealing it up, right? And so here, Sylvanus, it's best to understand, he's the one who's carrying the letter. And we don't really know what Silas did to make a living, but whatever he did do, he had, he had to have set that aside for the service of Christ. Walking or riding over miles and miles to deliver this letter, and Peter here describes him as faithful. That word faithful can mean two things. On the one hand, it can be dependable or trustworthy, full of faithfulness. Or this, on the other hand, it was a, he was a faithful Christian, someone who was strong in their faith. So which one is it? And the answer is yes, both, all of the above. He was faithful. He was trustworthy. He was a strong believer. And Peter here, he's saying he's, he's faithful for a reason. And it's worth thinking about why. Why would Peter describe him as faithful? In chapters 4 and 5, Peter describes people who are being threatened by the sword, right? Threatened with death just for being Christians. And now Peter writes down this letter and gives it to Silvanus to deliver. And Nero, he's, he's made an edict that it's illegal to be a Christian. Persecution was already happening. Christians were already cut off from the Jewish community and their countrymen and their families just for their religious beliefs. And Sylvanus is now going to take a letter containing words about Christ, words about Christianity, and about the fact that they were going to be persecuted by a wicked government. And what would happen if he got pulled over in, in a way, right, by a Roman guard? Hey, what's in that bag? What do you have? What's written down? And so, to avoid this, it's likely that Sylvanus would have taken the, the back roads, the, not, not the normal highways. He would have traveled across to avoid Roman authorities. And you, if you are not entrusting that to a faithful brother, you're just rolling the dice and see what happens. And how would you like to be known 2,000 years later after you're dead to be called faithful brother? So you're reading scripture, we learn the value of faithful companions and dedicated servants of the Lord in spreading the gospel. Paul, Peter, Silas, they were all like-minded and committed to the service of God. 
Whether they were praying for the guidance in in Asia or blazing new trails in Europe, preaching in synagogues or singing in the jails, their loyalty towards the gospel and each other is a model of how Christians uh, should work together even today. So number one, Silas teaches us that faithfulness generates a reputation. Number two, the second person that we see in this text is Peter himself. Peter can teach us a lesson this morning that the gospel supports everything. The gospel undergirds everything, all of life. Look at 1 Peter 5, 12, the second half. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And we must ask, what is it exactly that we are to stand firm in? And then how are we to do it? I mean, Peter, you're telling me that I'm standing on the tracks and I see the headlight of the train of persecution barreling towards me and I'm supposed to endure and stand firm? How can he ask us to do that? Well, the answer comes in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, and in chapter 5. Peter tells us that this is the grace of God. And here we see the tension, right, between what is and then what ought to be. This is known as the indicative and then the imperative, right? The indicative is the reality of what is, right? You hit the ball. And the imperative is the command. You hit the ball, so run, right? And in our passage, the indicatives come in, verses, in chapters 1 through 5, and the imperative then is in this uh, chapter 5, stand firm, Right? Another example of this indicative and imperative coming is in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so you are to work. And then Paul continues to say, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So am I to be working or is God working? Yes, both. It's, it's exactly right. Here in our passage, it's the reality of the grace of God and our standing firm that will allow us to endure. It's our responsibility this morning as we think about this, we talk about it, and to, to see where this might apply. What does it mean to stand firm and how do we do it? And so in this verse, we actually find really life giving truths that ought not to be burdensome to us. In the face, in the face of adversity, If we are to stand firm, then we are to learn the grace of God. This is what Peter has been writing about all throughout the epistle. And just at face value, right, you you think, well, suffering, it doesn't look like the grace of God. Right? Grace just means the unmerited kindness of God towards us. And suffering hardly seems like God's kindness. But let's look at the text, chapter by chapter. Walk through it with me. In chapter 1. You see the grace of God. Peter reminds them, you are born again. It's God's love that sought you out. And you were spiritually lifeless. And still, God chose you. And now, you're an alien, a stranger in a foreign land. He says that you're no longer, you are are now a stranger in a world. And that point is is likely going to bring suffering in your life. And he says, that's okay. In fact, Peter goes further than just saying it's okay. He says, gird up your loins, be ready, prepare your minds. Prepare your minds for action. Be holy, for God is holy. 
believers, we can't just ease off and stand back and live passively in this life. Peter calls for action in the light of the coming suffering. Again, he says, be holy for God is holy. And if that's not the highest standard, then I don't know what is. In chapter two, we continue to see the grace of God. Peter continues giving another illustration, right? He says, you're living stones being built upon one another in verse four. And then in verse nine, he says, remember, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own choosing. And because of this, we must and we should submit to every governmental authority, even if they persecute you. The government might even ask you to do something that's not in your preference as a believer. But if they are not asking you to sin, then you are to submit to them. We are to submit to them. Any human institution that is over us, we must submit to. That means teachers or boss or parents, police or city councils. And that's okay, right? Because Peter says we follow in the likeness of Christ. Christ is our example in our submission. You follow after him. You take up your cross daily and follow after Christ. And then in chapter 3, we continue to see God's grace in our life. Peter narrows it down into a particular relationship in the family. It's husbands and wives. There needs to be submission there between a wife and her husband and also the husband then to the Lord. Even if your husband is an unbeliever, you submit to him because your example to him and your submission might just win him over. And husbands, we need to interact with our wives in an understanding way. In fact, we all need to be submissive, loving, gentle, and humble with Christ as our example. And in chapter 4, we continue again to see the grace of God. Peter continues with a whole lot of imperatives and instructions. We're to be full of love. We're to submit. We're to be gentle. And basically, we're to be excellent in our Christianity. Really, again, the message of Peter is not so much that suffering is going to come, but the message of Peter is that your responsibility comes to honor the Lord in the midst of suffering. He commands us to work towards excellence in our Christianity. In chapter 5, Peter talks about how elders are ought to shepherd. He talks about the church's call to humility and our excellence in resisting temptation. Why? Because the world is watching This is the true grace of God. Each one of these topics is full of the grace of God if we can just see it. And Peter, in our passage today, he's emphatic in verse 12, right? We are to stand firm in the grace of God. And if I asked you to define grace or what does grace mean, we might come with the, the answer, right? It's unmerited favor, unmerited kindness of God. And so just as an exercise, think about the grace of God in your own life. And when I ask that question, many of you might have gone to your own salvation story. You might have seen the grace of God in your salvation story when you came to Christ. And God being so gracious to pull you from the depths of your sin, to peel off the scales of your eyes, to open your ears, to give you a heart of flesh that you might be sensitive to the things of God. And I'd give you a hearty amen. It's beautiful to see God's grace in your salvation. Now, oftentimes we think of grace only in terms of of our salvation and not our sanctification. 
Because it's the same grace that saves you. is the same grace that sanctifies you. Right? First Peter is not an evangelistic letter. It's a letter to the church, a letter to believers. And this is the grace of God as you press on towards Christ's likeness and to his glory. Right? It's God's kindness that you have authority in your life. It's God's kindness that elders shepherd the church. It's God's kindness that you feel like an alien here on earth. This is not our home. There's something inside of you knowing that this is not the way that God designed it to be. This is the grace of God. This is unmerited kindness. This is grace. Right? You know what locker room talk is, right? There's also warehouse talk. For work, you know, I, I go into a large warehouse and to buy irrigation parts, and there's times where I just cannot wait to get out of that place because it's vulgar and it's unbecoming of how I know the way things are supposed to be. I'm an alien here. I'm a stranger here on this earth, and there's hope that lies beyond the river. This is God's kindness towards you. Think about the suffering that Peter has been talking about up until this point. That is God's kindness towards you. It is the grace, and this is grace, and Peter labors to make the point theologically throughout the book so that when the hard times come, we can stand firm and say, yes, this is God's kindness towards me. And what stops us from recognizing God's grace in our life? Well, it's self-focus. When we are the center of our own worldview, it skews everything else. But when our worldview centers around the greatness of God, especially the gospel, then we can say that suffering, yes, is the kindness of God. There's no other way than to set our hearts and our minds upon the greatness of God. To refresh our hearts daily with the truth of his word. Behold his glory. Behold his splendor. Look upon his unending riches. Then we can say with the prophet Isaiah that my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. I can confess, you know, I don't have it all figured out. And so church, refresh your minds with the gospel that God is love, that he sent his son. And then God looked on me as an enemy and sent his son to die on a cross of wood in order that I might be reconciled to him as a son. Take that day by day and tell yourself that this is the true grace of God. This is how the gospel underlines everything that we do. And Peter says then to stand firm in the grace, right? Stand up straight, chest high, chin out. Know that this is not just a solo act. It's not... It's more than just you acting alone. It's a synergistic act, and there's two parties at work here, right? Too often, we see sanctification as just a one-sided endeavor, right? If I could just work a little bit harder, if I could just make another rule to follow to keep me from falling, if I could just be a better person, if I could just discipline myself a little bit more as if God's grace was non-existent. The Bible commands us to come and drink of God's grace in order that we might obey the commands of Scripture. Right? If we are to pursue uh, sanctification in our own strength, you might look like you're obeying Scripture, but you're just crushing yourself. You're slowly killing yourself. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And what a difference it'll make in your life to obey the commands of Scripture by the grace that God supplies. And if you look at verse 12, look in what manner Peter wrote to him, wrote to the church. He exhorted them. That word exhort, right? Here's a people that needed comforting, right? People have been kicked out of their homes, thrown in jail, being persecuted. And he doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry for your situation. I'll be praying for you. No, he says, listen, hard times are coming. So be holy, be holy. So if a church like this in Asia Minor needed to be exhorted, how much more do we who live in comfort need to be exhorted to stand firm on the true grace of God? Here Peter is teaching us that the grace of the gospel underlies every circumstances, suffering, trials, or threats. There's nothing imaginable that could push God's grace out of your life. So stand firm in it. Stand firm in the gospel. The third person in our passage this morning is found in verse 13. She who is in Babylon sends her greetings. And so the woman in Babylon here teaches us that there's fellowship in exile. That there's fellowship in exile. And let me just say uh, at the start of this point, for however many commentaries exist on 1 Peter, there's that many views on who this woman in Babylon is. And so some pay, say it's uh, Peter's wife. Some say it's the church in general. Some say it's uh, someone, uh, someone specific in, in Rome. And, uh, and so for us to, to think through this uh, and to understand who is this one in Babylon, let's look back to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. I'll just read it here. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 and 2. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And so I'm approaching it looking at almost like, like bookends to the whole book. He starts and, and ends hitting some of the same topics, right? You have the chosen in chapter 1, and you have the chosen in chapter 5, verse 13. You also have this church dispersed in chapter 1, and you have this woman in Babylon in chapter 5. In addition, at the end of chapter 1, verse 2, you'll find peace. And then you see that repeated in chapter 5. Peace uh, be to you all in Christ. And so I think that the, the she who is in Babylon probably represents other Christians who are alienated from life as they know it, who are close in proximity to, who, where, uh, to where Peter was at when he wrote this book. And if I'm wrong, if I get to heaven and I'm wrong on that, then we'll delete this sermon <laughs> and we'll get it right. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, Babylon, you know, you think, think about Babylon. And another way to say it is that the, the, the woman in Babylon is just another way of saying the Christians who are suffering. And so why does Peter use that word Babylon? Well, because the whole nation of Israel went to Babylon as exiles, right? And that word Babylon became almost synonymous with the topic of exile. And again, there's a various interpretations of this, but I think that it makes sense that this is the church in the area that Peter was writing when he wrote this, that the woman in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. And so 
Peter continues, he's saying that, that uh, they, you were chosen together with you, right? Chosen by whom? Well, it's by God for salvation. Chosen together with you shows Peter acknowledging that God's choosing in salvation in chapter 1 as well as repeated in chapter 5. And so this woman or this church then, these believers send their greetings. This is another example of God's true grace in your life. And these greetings that are sent, is just, it, it goes way deeper than just a, hey, how's it going? Or what's up? You know? uh, do any of you receive our Brazilian missionary, Mark and Jess, do you ever uh, receive their newsletters throughout the month? If you don't, come talk to me after. You'll get, I'll get you hooked up with receiving them because they're awesome. Their greetings to you as a supporter, far exceed a, hey, how's it going? Right? Sending their greetings means that they're sending you the fully articulated, specific blessings of God associated with Christ and the gospel. That's why their newsletter is just so amazing to read, to see what God is doing in and through them in Brazil. But the churches here in the, in the first century... Uh, they didn't get the, those monthly e- email blasts, and, you know, which gives the, the little and, and far and few between communication that they did receive, it, they, it holds a lot of weight. And so they were involved, these, these early churches, they were so involved in the sending uh, process that the blessings that were extended from one church to another uh, were of substance. They were deep in their meaning. They meant something special to those who received it. It was more than just a simple hello. And so think about this. How can we apply that to our own life? You know, what if you, after church this morning, invited someone to lunch? Say, I'm so happy to see you. And I want you to be enjoying the riches of God in Christ as I am. And I'm looking forward to talking about the grace of God that's in our lives, not only about salvation, but in our sanctification. And the gospel is impacting my life. And I want you to know how I can encourage you this week. And I might, that we might look upon the glories and the beauty of Christ on the cross. And I want to do that in such a way that our lives could never be the same since we had lunch today. Of course, it doesn't need to be that elaborate or articulated in that way. But how about we do a little bit more than just saying, hi, what's up? Try it today. Try it next week. Try it the next time that you see a believer. And I think that's why being exiled fosters fellowship because the church has had this unique fellowship with the people that they hadn't even met, but were going through the same exact things as the recipients of Peter's letter as they were near Peter when he wrote this. So the woman in Babylon teaches us that exile forges fellowship. And the fourth person that we see in this passage is Mark. Number four, Mark. Mark teaches us that there's victory in repentance. There's victory in repentance. See, repentance finds victory over failure. Peter continues in the same verse, in verse 13, so does my son Mark send his greetings. It's remarkable that even Mark would be mentioned here in this passage, right? We're first introduced to Mark in the book of Acts, and we learn quite a bit about him there. Uh, Also known as John Mark, this is the man who wrote the gospel of Mark, right? Mark was not 
one of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus around. You may know that only two of the four gospels in your Bible is actually written by a disciple. That's Matthew and John. See, Luke was a doctor and Mark was a second generation Christian that he learned uh, about the gospel, not from being an eyewitness account, but through other means, other testimony. And so when you look through the book of Acts, you find men like Tychicus, right, who delivered letters for Paul, and he's normally associated with Paul. But here we find John Mark, and he's really a fascinating case study. In Acts chapter 13, we see that he was a companion of Paul and Barnabas, right, the, the, the encourager, Barnabas, Barnabas, the encourager. And something happened to them in chapter 15, verse 37 through 39. Mark, he chickens out. He abandons Paul and Barnabas. And he feared persecution. And some even suggest that at that time, he might have just only been a teenager, maybe only 15 or 20 years old. And Barnabas and Paul, they were now left abandoned by Mark in the middle of their missionary journey. And that really caused an interesting tension between them, to say the least, between Paul and Barnabas, since Mark was Barnabas' cousin. Right? So this led up to Paul and Barnabas having an argument with the main topic of discussion being Mark's usefulness. It ended up being a split decision. Paul says, I don't want him with me. Forget it. He deserted me once and, and let him do whatever he wants to do, but he's never going to be my wingman. And Barnabas, he goes, okay, so I want, I want to give him another chance. And so what's remarkable here is that Paul is, is left making this dissenting argument against uh, Mark. But turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. This is fascinating. Paul is closing the, the letter to the, the church in Colossae. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark. Mark? about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. I mean, how do we make sense of this? He is now imprisoned with Paul. I mean, Mark had this bad reputation, but now Paul is giving specific instruction to the church that Mark is faithful, so receive him back. And what's even more uh, uh, amazing is turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Chapter 4, we see Paul in prison, and he's about to be executed by Nero's sword, right? And these are the last inspired words of Paul as he's about to die. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, he's deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark. And bring him with you, for he is useful to my service. Everyone's left him, right? He's alone. And so what does Paul want? He wants Mark with him. So let's put this whole timeline together, right? Mark, he gets converted. Mark goes on Paul's missionary journey. Then Mark bails out and he deserts Paul. Mark comes around and he, he wants to go back and he wants to testify about the gospel. And Paul's like, no way, Jose, I'm out. Barnabas says, I'll take you. And so now fast forward to see what Paul is saying, that Mark is now useful to me. 
I've sent special instructions to appreciate and to encourage him and to employ him in the service of Christ. And so what on earth happened between those points? What happened in the gap there? Well, it's all in our text in 1 Peter. Look at verse 13 again. Who sends their greetings? My son, Mark. Do you think Peter could relate with Mark on the topic of desertion? After all, right, he's the one who denied Christ three times. He's the one who failed miserably but received the true grace of God at the end and was instructed to tend my lambs. Peter, who would one day die for his faith, took Mark and poured into him. And that's the reality is that repentance restores one's usefulness. Have you ever had a failure at any level? Have you ever walked away in shame? Mark knows that he messed up. And Peter puts his arm around him and said, hey, kid, you haven't, you haven't done anything yet. Let me tell you my story. Listen, it's never too late, church. It's never too late for repentance. And here's the amazing part. Here's the cool part. You know, Mark wasn't even an eyewitness of Christ. So how did he end up writing the gospel of Mark? Where did he get all that information Well, it's Peter's discipleship of Mark. And in Mark, seeing Peter day by day testifying and preaching in the synagogues, right? He heard the gospel and he gave testimony of a life of Christ and that led to Mark writing it all down. I like Mark a lot because I I feel like I can identify it with him. You know, I may not have stood by the fire and denied Christ three times or abandoned some missionary journey with the apostle Paul out of fear. But I've had my own personal failures, my own denials, my own abandonments. Can you relate to Mark? See, repentance finds victory over failure. And so far we've seen Silvanus, number one, teaching us that faithfulness generates a reputation. Number two, Peter teaches us the importance of the gospel undergirding all of life. Number three, the woman in Babylon teaches us that there is fellowship in exile. And Mark, number four, teaches us that there's victory over failure when repentance happens. And now fifth, the last person to teach us is Christ. Number five, Christ teaches us that peace comes with salvation. Look at verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. This is the end game. Right? This is so much more than Peter just tacking on one final thought. This verse is not arbitrary, but rather it's a natural outworking of a life lived learning to stand in the true grace of God. And he begins this letter with grace and peace to be multiplied to you. And he ends his letter now with grace has now been dispensed. And he reiterates the peace. And so before we get too deep into this, we have to deal with that first part of the verse, right? Greet one another with a holy kiss or a kiss of love. You know, I spent a a semester in Israel uh, in college. And one of the things that struck me was how affectionate Arab men are in the Middle East, You know, it's not uncommon to see Arab men walk hand in hand down the street and there's nothing sexual about it whatsoever. And, and, you know, maybe you've experienced uh, greeting from maybe an Italian or a a Russian or a Frenchman, right? Like kissing on the cheek, right? And you hope you go the right way or you're going to get surprised with something else. (laughs) 
right? But there's nothing nefarious in that greeting, right? Peter, all Peter's saying is express your love to believers. And we do this with respect, right? As an aside, men, you do not need to embrace every woman. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I learned this the hard way just months after becoming a, a Christian, I didn't go to this church, but I went to a, another church and I would hug everyone I saw. I was excited to be at church until a sister, a beloved sister, and I'm so thankful she did it. She said, Matt, you don't need to hug me. I said, okay. I was a little offended, but I made her feel uncomfortable and that's okay. Like that, it's okay that she said that, right? I can find a different way of expressing familial love, whether that be a holy fist bump or a holy high five, I, Whatever. Find a different way to express your familial love with one another in the church. Peter here, he's talking about this familial kiss, a warm greeting. And so if you're a member of this church, you should be able to greet one another with that same familial greeting. All right, if there's an issue between you and a brother or you and a sister, then fix it. Fix it as soon as possible because a failure to do so shows just there's been a grave misunderstanding about God's grace in your life and it needs to be addressed. My physical expressions of love with sincerity and with pure hearts are welcomed in the household of God. And finding yourself in the household of God through salvation is the only way that Christ can offer peace. Not just with him, not just peace with Christ, but peace with one another. And if you stand in the grace of God for salvation, then he's giving you all that you need. And this peace will then be yours. And it's the same type of peace that defines the people of God. This peace in verse 14 is the same peace that we'll have when Christ will call us home and end all of our suffering and momentary light afflictions. They will fade into the past. And then this same peace will characterize us when we've been face to face with Christ for 10,000 years. Peter says, here is a measure of peace that's available to you right now if you would just learn it, if you would just stand in the grace of God. Think about what's about to happen at the end of this book, right? The Roman government has declared war on Christianity. Satan himself roaming around like a lion to devour. But there's peace in the midst of suffering. There's peace in the midst of coming persecution. There's peace in the midst of family feuding. There's peace in the midst of not being able to travel. There's peace in the midst of Christians being thrown into jail. This is the same peace for us that comes only through Christ and the outpouring of his grace. Look at verse 10 and 11 of chapter five. What does this peace look like? After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right? It's Christ's personal investment of himself to perfect, to confirm, to strengthen and establish you because he is the only one who has dominion forever and ever. And he's the one that can provide this peace. John Calvin, in his introduction to his commentary on 1 Peter says this, the design of Peter in this epistle 
is to exhort the faithful to a denial of the world and contempt of it. So that by being freed from carnal affections and all earthly hindrances, they might with their whole soul aspire after the celestial kingdom of Christ. That being elevated by hope, supported by patience, and fortified by courage and perseverance, they might overcome all kinds of temptations and pursue this course and practice throughout their lives. Listen. In the midst of everything that is going to tempt you to move away from Christ, the way to be free is to be found in Christ. You can only be at peace if you are found in Christ. You cannot stand firm if you are not in Christ. You cannot endure suffering if you are not in Christ. You cannot submit to authority if you're not properly submitted to Christ first. You cannot humble yourself if you are not in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you'll likely become the persecutor of the church. You might not go around lighting Christians on fire, but you'll see faithful Christians and you'll disdain their actions. You'll disdain their uh, endurance. And so as we come to the end of 1 Peter and learn these lessons from these last few people that Peter writes about, what a joy it is to think about the truths of this text. We can stand firm in the grace that God gives. He has saved us from our sins and we are no longer bearing the weight of our sin. We can rest easy tonight knowing that God has called us to himself. If you do not have this peace, if you've never experienced this peace, know that Jesus calls you today. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace, Jesus says. And if that's you, come talk to me after the service. So I want to thank you. Thank you for being with us through this study. And I pray that it has been a blessing to you. Let's pray together. Father, your word teaches us and guides our every step. Thank you so much for this wonderful book of 1 Peter. Thank you for taking Peter and using him so mightily as we see in the book of Acts. Through our study, you've given us such practical examples of what, to, what our focus ought to be and what we need to remember in every circumstance in this life. We need to remember our great salvation. We need to remember our testimony to an onlooking world in the midst of suffering. We need to submit to everyone who has been put over us, and we'll do that as we follow your example of humility and holiness. I pray that our study together has grown in us a longing to see you. God, I pray that there's been a, a longing desire in our hearts to see your kingdom established. We want the things of this earth to grow strangely dim in the light of your glorious grace. We are strangers and aliens in this land. Allow us to see your kindness towards us. And may we be active and obedient to your words. Let us never take a day off from our Christian lives, but double down in the power of the Spirit to live holy lives that are set apart so that we might stand firm in you. Father, give us faithfulness and fellowship and grace and peace. And so we commit all these things to you and ask for your blessing in all things. 
Amen.